0: Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar.
1: Hello, it's Peter Oborn, and I'm here in Wiltshire.
2: Hello, it's Richard Heller. I'm in South East London. Today we have an absolutely thrilling guest. He's got a public of around perhaps more than 300 million worldwide, uh, which is certainly a great deal more than mine and even more than yours, Peter. And we're delighted to welcome cricket lover and novelist Geoffrey Archer. Good morning. Geoffrey, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted. And A very good morning to you.
1: Geoffrey, it's such a thrill to have you. You're a great cricketer. You've both said so much about cricket. Cricket looms large in your short stories and not in your novels. And so, first of all, can we ask you Somerset? What are your first memories of being a young lad in Somerset and watching cricket? Well, of course, what's sad about that
0: is it can't happen to a young man in Somerset nowadays because I was brought up in Western Supermare and we had three of the county matches at Clarence Park in Western Supermare and they've been cancelled for many years. So my first love of cricket came when I went down to Clarence Park to watch the Somerset team in the 1950s, where I, I sold scorecards, I helped on the score board, and I worked mm-hmm. in the tent. But I was sacked for working in the tent because I worked out at an early age that the tea interval came at 20 to 4. And so in my tent, which was one side of the ground, and there was another tent the other side of the ground, I had a dozen teas and biscuits ready at 21 minutes to four. And I sold them all immediately. And my tent made twice as much money as the other tent. And I got the sack because the unions didn't approve of the way I worked. I think that was when I first discovered I was never going to be joining the Labour Party. (laughs) That's...
2: You could say a microcosm of English life at that time, Geoffrey, it was in the 1950s. But I expect, Richard, and for you too, Peter,
0: whichever your counties are deepest in your heart, you can name the team when you were eight years old, man for man, as I can now for Somerset, with the great Harold Gimlet and Tremlett and Walford and all of them. I can remember them all. Smith, Brocklehurst, I can remember them all but I couldn't name
1: the entire Somerset team today. You mentioned the name Wolford, Mickey Wolford. Tell me your, your, how you remember him, because he taught me economics at Sherbourne School in the 1970s. Well, M.M. Wolford
0: was what we don't have today, what I was when I ran, and what he was when he played cricket. He was a genuine amateur. When the school uh, stopped teaching you he would come to Clarence Park in Western Supermare and bat for Somerset. You can't do that nowadays, quite rightly. They're all professionals, they're all properly paid, and it's a proper job. But half the Somerset team would have been schoolmasters or other jobs that had long summer holidays. And that's why we were bottom of the table for 11 years in a row. I might point out that is a record, unequalled in the history of the game. Indeed, when I was speaking in Yorkshire many, many years ago and greatly honoured to do uh, Len Hutton's 60th birthday, he very kindly invited me to Sheffield to be the speaker at his 60th birthday. It was unfortunate for Yorkshire that it was the first time in their history that they had been bottom of the county cricket table. So I opened my speech with the words, and I can assure you it was met with some degree of noise. I opened my speech with, um, My Lord Mayor, uh, Sir Leonard, I never thought the day would come when Yorkshire would be bottom of the county cricket table. I prayed for it. I just never thought that it would come. It took another three minutes before I could get the next
1: God bless them.
0: <laughs> of course, they and Surrey, when I was a child, they and Surrey were top. They took it in turns. Well, Surrey, actually, I think, were top seven years in a row.
1: They certainly were. I Peter May's were in team, the 50s. Yeah.
0: yes. It was strong, and I you? could name the whole of that team as well. Because, I mean, Peter May scored a century down in Clarence Park, and Locke and Laker and Loder. And Bedser and Bedser. I mean, they were an amazing side. I think they had nine Surridge, England get players from the Surrey yeah. side.
1: Who do you support, Peter? Worcestershire. And I and I was just thinking, absolutely. When I was eight, it was Kenya Flavel. Every yeah, I could do the lot. Yeah, Standen, who was also wicket keep, Sorry, goalkeeper for West Ham. Oh. Hemsley, who was also played for Sheffield United. You know, it was that lovely old mix You're clearly a man who's happy with losing. Worcestershire, I will tell you, was won the county championship twice, twice. in the sixties, twice in a row in the sixties, and, yeah. and also in nineteen seventy four. I think it was. So and we've no, never no, won no. it. do engraved in the mid order. Somerset, Somerset still has haven't happened. won it. We have never won the
2: county. No, World. very sad. You and Northamptonshire and Gloucestershire, because they've been destroyed. Oh, the enemy, the early ones they won under W. G. Grace have been sort of knocked out of the the reckoning. Geoffrey, you're very as a Somerset man. You're very pr- proud of having played with. Um, Viv Richards and Ian Botham. It was an embarrassing moment. I have played, I will tell you,
0: both occasions. I played with Botham against the rest of the world. I was in batting and a man called Derek Underwood, who I thought was a slow bowler. I was under the impression from what I had read in my newspapers that he was a slow bowler. And I actually didn't see the ball. I was clean balled and didn't see the ball. And very kindly, Ian shouted, not out! Uh, Mr. Underwood was not pleased with this and uh, did exactly the same thing with the second ball. So I had two balls in the middle and both on both occasions. I was clean ball by Derek Underwood. Now, I was able to get revenge many years later doing an auction for the British Olympic Association to see him in the audience. And uh, I made him pay money for something that certainly wasn't worth what he was buying. So I got revenge. Now, in the case of Viv Richards, who is among the laziest human beings I've ever met in my life, and Peter will tell you that I am overdone with energy. So I go in with the great man, and I think I'm about to score a single, which would have been good for me, because really for me to be able to say uh, wait is really rather impressive. But this single looked to me on the cards, and I used to run a little, so I charged to the other end, But Viv didn't move an inch. So I realized that I had, I realized I would have to sacrifice my wicket. I realized in the good of the game and for my team. So I I got back as fast as I could, but they stumped me. And as I left the ground in Taunton and climbed the steps, a yokel in the crowd who realized I'd given up my wicket, a yokel in the crowd said, good decision, my dear. The last stoning in Taunton was in 1452.
2: (laughs) I think you might have been a victim if you'd said, get back, Viv, you're the one to go, Viv, I'm set. I've also batted with Gavaskar, who
0: I told, we were out there for three minutes. Gavaskar always wanted me to achieve the thing I've always felt I should have achieved in life, which was be captain of the England cricket team. In fact, he used to tell everybody that he thought I ought to be captain of the England cricket team. I batted with Gavaskar and an amazing incident took place that you as lovers of cricket, I witnessed. I was in the middle. Gavaskar hit the ball beautifully to cover. He was then aged 60, I would guess. And Sir Clive Lloyd, now Sir Clive, and quite rightly so, Sir Clive Lloyd dived full length and caught him. Earlier, a few minutes before, I had hit the ball past Clive Lloyd and he allowed it to go to the boundary without putting his long arm down to pick it up. So I went over to Sir Clive and I said, great man, I said, having caught this amazing catch off Gavaskar, I said, what the hell's all that about? And he said, I dropped him in Trinidad and I wasn't going to drop him today. And that's what cricket's <laughs> about. The spirit goes on and on. So I went into the changing. was that
1: the in- innings where Gavaskar, you know, in his first big series for India in the West Indies, he scored all those double centuries. Well, remember. In the 90- like mid-1970s. Like, well, yep. remember.
0: And, and Clive dropped him. Yeah. So I went into the pavilion and saw Sunil, and I said, great man, I said, what was that all about? And he said, exactly the same. He dropped me in Trinidad, he wasn't going to drop me today. And I realised they remember these things. They, they, they stay there. And two, by the way, we all have a genuine love of cricket here. Those are two of the nicest human beings I've ever met in my life, Clive Lloyd and Sunil Gavin. I
1: remember when I used to go, Jeffrey, to your wonderful shepherd's pie and champagne parties. Along with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Prime Minister and the Cabinet Secretary, there was also always Clyde Lloyd. God knows how you got invited. (laughs) Now, on the subject of your desire to be Captain of the England cricket team, did your heart beat a little faster when you first saw the name Jay Archer on the team sheet? Did you think they'd come
0: calling at last? Well, I sat by the phone, and it clearly wasn't me. I was, I was heartbroken. <laughs> My son rang immediately to congratulate me, and, and I thought, "That's it. I've done it at last." <laughs> I, I, I've always thought I should be the captain, Peter. I can't bat, bowl, or field. Which, but then, relevance is the refuge of the inhibited. So I thought uh, I was a natural captain and I said this. I had the great honour, going back to uh, Leonard Hutton, they celebrated quite recently, as you may know, his 100th birthday in in uh, Leeds, in the great one of the great cricket grounds on earth. Mm. And Michael Breeley and I were uh, invited to be the speakers. And I told them that I wanted to be the captain of the England cricket team. But unfortunately, I couldn't bat, bowl, or field. And a voice in the audience, a Yorkshire voice in the audience said, ah, lad, it never worried Brealey. <laughs> 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 who I think's probably, who I think probably the best captain in my lifetime. Best England captain in my lifetime.
2: I think so. I think that most people would agree with you. Geoffrey, what, what are your feelings on Botham's peerage?
0: Um, Ian is a very remarkable human being. I've had the privilege, because he was a Somerset boy, of knowing him for, mm. I've known him for 50 years, and he's a close friend. So I have to say that immediately so that whatever I say after has that prejudice attached to it. Right. Mm. If he had been born in 1920, he'd have got a Victoria Cross in the war. He's among the bravest squash bucklers I've ever met in my life. There's a side of him, there's a highly intelligent side of him that makes him a good companion I was delighted when he got his knighthood he got his knighthood not for cricket he got a CBE for cricket people forget that he was awarded the CBE when he retired he got his knighthood for his services to charity and I've been on those walks with him and done the leukemia stuff with him and done auctions for him and he's not a fly-by-night charity supporter It's year in and year out, day in and day out. So the knighthood delighted me. The peerage appears to have been awarded on the grounds that he supported Brexit and the current prime minister, of course, uh, led the Brexit campaign. And so I accept that. It's a political decision. I accept it having been a Remainer myself. So I accept it on political grounds. I can't in my heart believe We'll be seeing him regularly in the house
2: giving us speeches, but I wait mm. to see. He'll be a big asset if he chooses to be to the Lords and Commons cricket team. <laughs> uh, others, I should think either as a player or as a, as a mentor. I am one of the few people on Earth who's actually been dropped
0: from the Lord's cricket team. I mean, I was so bad that they ended up deciding I'd have to be an umpire and be polite about it. But uh, there it was. Uh, Ian indeed can captain us. That would be wonderful. Uh, And the late Colin Cowdery, who I loved, he used to captain us. Uh, And there was another. You will have both met him. There was another lovely human being. I mean, just such a nice, nice man. Who stood by you in good times and bad? Great cricketer. He told me a Len Hutton story. His first time, he couldn't believe it nowadays, Peter. You couldn't believe nowadays. Well, you could, both, because you understand the game. He didn't meet Leonard Hutton until they were in the changing room for the first test. He'd never met him. And he was the captain. Uh, Len was the captain. In
1: Australia, did... was it? We're in Australia. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And he walked out in on the pitch. famous tour. Yeah, he walked out on the pitch, and and he said, "I got a I got a four in the third over." Colin got a four in the third his third over, and he swears to me this is true. Len came up and said, "We're not in a hurry, lad." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I used to love sitting next to him. He said, "We we were we got a particularly boring member of the Lord speaking when I was sitting on the back benches with Colin." So I said, what did you do for the weekend? He said, I was going to retire, Geoffrey. I thought the 70 was a good age to retire. So I went to play a match with the heartbreaks or whatever, you know, Tim Rice's lot. And uh, I've decided I can't retire. And I said, why not, great man? Why can't you retire? And he said, well, I think if people knew that my final innings was caught, cleese, bold, rice, this would not be a good way to go. <laughs> <laughs> god bless him yeah. great man loved yeah. him now he I made a mistake on as well and I'll go back to your point peter because i could see where you were coming from with your political blame stretching when john major made colin cowdrey a lord i faintly disapproved on the grounds that john loved his cricket and that this seemed to me personal but there you are i have to tell you colin cowdrey was a brilliant lord he came regularly Whenever there was a sports occasion, he was at it. He spoke in the Lords on youth in cricket, youth in sport, and was greatly admired by people on the benches. And it may be that we are shocked that Botham adds something as well.
1: You also were a great friend of the late Nawab of Patadi, about whom I believe you read a, a short story, didn't you? One of your few short stories on cricket.
0: Well, you mentioned that at the beginning, Peter, and the truth is that you very kindly said 300 million people read me. 200 million of them don't follow the game of cricket. So it's no use putting it in a novel, I'm afraid. So I do it in short stories. Now, the Nawab was captain of Oxford, as you know, and captain of India, as you know, and tragically lost an eye in an accident, but still went on captaining his country. He was the most remarkable gentleman I go to India a lot. They're very, very kind to me there. And he very kindly held a dinner in my honour with Kapil Dev.
1: While we're on the subject of India, uh, we had last week Hassan Mani, the chairman of the Pakistan Cricket Board, a very distinguished man who Indeed. transformed the finances Indeed. of world cricket. And he was, we were asking him about something which all of us, everybody listening, to this we will know we must get the India Pakistan test series back on board yes of course and we were talking to san about this how could you use your influence in India to make it happen because we the world needs it for all sorts of reasons not just cricketing reasons but political reasons to end the tensions between the two great countries
0: it's ve- it's very sad isn't it because you're quite right they're two great countries they're two great lovers of cricket They produce some of the greatest players the world has ever known. And they're sadly at the moment, for political reasons, not meeting on the field of battle, which is very, very sad indeed. And now you mention it. The metaphorical field of battle, of course. The metaphorical field of battle. And now you mention it, Peter, I will make a point next time. I have to tell you that in Jaipur this year, I I drew a crowd of 7,500 people to come and hear me speak. And and if you had said this to me before then, I would have mentioned it. Because the saddest thing to tell you is I don't go to Pakistan. That's the reason I mentioned 7,500 people came to hear me speak, is because the Pakistanis write to me saying, Jeffrey, you'd get the same numbers if you came to Pakistan, we love you here. And the Foreign Office keeps Mm. saying, don't go. So it's bigger than cricket. I've been to India 23 times and never been to Pakistan. And you're very close to a
2: lot of great Indian players, aren't you, Geoffrey? Jeffrey. Um, I've had the privilege of Recently the and currently, yes. Well, it's
0: been explained to me by them so often, VVS Laxman in particular and Roald Rabid and uh, Sunil Gavaskar and the great Tendulkar, that they're away from their homes for a very long time. So they do a lot of reading. And that's how I've got to know them and they've got to know me. And that's been wonderful for me. So through books, I've had the privilege of actually meeting them. And I was going to say to Peter, in reference to your comments, Peter, about great matches, I think the match between India and Australia, where India were asked to follow on, and VVS Laxman and Raoul Dravid stayed at the crease all day and then won the match that caused the winning of the match, is among the great matches that has ever been played. You see, I'm like you two. Of course I love to watch England, and of course I watched them yesterday, and of course I'm delighted that we seem to have a new star in Ollie Pope, who I've thought for a long time. Since he was under 19, I thought he was good. But for me, I don't give a damn if it's South Africa versus Pakistan. I don't give a damn if it's India versus Australia. I get just as thrilled by the game because I'm a five-day cricket man myself. I tolerate one-day matches. I hate 2020. And I always say in India, when they when they have a go at me about this, VVS Laxman and Roald Dravid was the greatest days cricket you've seen in this country.
2: Of course,
1: uh, we mustn't leave out Gabaska's famous innings at the Oval. Was it 2-3-4, he scored Richard, who, no, in no. that vain two, attempt... but 2 so one,
2: when they chased a total of over 400... Very nearly made it. That was a wonderful test match. I can't resist saying I I bowled against the man who was Gavaskar's opening partner that day. Chetan Chawan became a BJP MP. And I bowled a long spell at him for the Lords and Commons on their tour of India when they played the Indian Parliament in 2004-2005. So I just wanted to get that in. Jeffrey, we've had some other guests on this podcast uh, who've made quite a strong defence of T20. It's a great way of introducing the game to new countries. It was the kind of the making of Afghan cricket initially. Now, of course, they're playing test cricket. Nepal is apparently the next big thing in cricket, and that's due to their adherence to T20. But above all, we've been told T20 is a means by which cricket could reconquer the United States. Um, as a summer game.
0: I have no doubt, Richard, that 2020 is the way to get to the young. I have no doubt about that. Mm. And I have the no, no doubt it's the way to introduce someone who doesn't understand the game of cricket to the game. I understand that. But you you are both old traditionalists and mm. therefore the five-day game. I mean, There was a match, you'll, you'll correct me because you're better informed than I am. I think it was South Africa versus Australia at Cape Town where in the last over of the fifth day, you could have had a win, a tie, a draw, and a lose in the last over of the fifth day. So those people who say to me they don't understand how you can play a game for five days and have a draw, it, that, it's part of the drama. It's part of the whole thing. I mean, I love that punch cartoon of the 1930s where one caveman is saying to another... 18th person, caveman is saying to another caveman, tell me about this game of cricket. He said, well, you go in first, 11 men. You, so you score 800 for three and you declare. Then what happens? He said, well, we go in, we're all out for 10. Then what happens again? You go in again, you get 800 for three, and we go in again. And then what happens? You, we go in and we're 10 for nine, but the rain comes. So what's the result? It's a draw. And I think for me, for me... That cartoon sums up
2: everything about the ridiculous game of cricket. I was interested in a remark you made a moment, or uh, some moments ago, and you suggested that um, cricket is not appealing to American readers, and so you've avoided it in the long novels, most of your long novels, and um, that was a factor that um, also put off our great hero P.G. Woodhouse from writing... Many more cricket novels after he'd finished the mic sequence. Well, P.G.
0: Woodhouse, funnily enough, as you know, loved the game of cricket and also was loved by the Indian people. He's uh, of that generation. He's the author they, they love and talk about. What a great writer. And those Indians, of course, are completely bonkers, all of them. They bought out a wonderful film. Did you see it called Lagan? which is the story of yes, a cricket match. Uh, of course. Match. Terrific. A, a yes. story of an mm. Indian cricket match with an untouchable being the slow bowler against the English snobs, the English. And, of course, and I, an Indian friend had the nerve to say to me, I love the film. I absolutely loved it. The Indi, an Indian friend had the nerve to say to me, I didn't realise how it would end, Geoffrey. I said, don't be stupid. It was done. It was made, mm. The film was made for you. You were always going to win the match. But I'll tell you why mm. you won the match. I tell, you, I tell you exactly why you won the match. Because of the thing we both care most about in cricket. Both the umpires were English. So you knew mm. every result would be fair. And what's great about that film is no one gives it a second thought that both the umpires are English and the Indian team wins. That's what I love about cricket
1: it's very interesting what you're saying about the enthusiasm for Woodhouse in India. It's also true, as we've discovered, and Richard is too modest. He gave a talk to the Lahore Literary Festival about P.G. Woodhouse. And the whole, it turned out there's a P.G. Woodhouse fan club, a literary society in in Lahore, which was there. It was crammed to the rafters. Crammed with younger people,
2: which is interesting.
0: Because I'm a huge Mm. fan. I would love to have been in the audience. There's a touch of genius there that's very hard to explain. Not you, Richard. P.G. Woodhouse <laughs> No,
2: <laughs> well, I don't think anybody's ever said that of me. You're a great admirer of uh, Vikram Seth, aren't you? Oh, yes. Uh, we might talk about cricket plays a role in um, A Suitable Boy, which we're about to get on BBC television.
0: Uh, Vikram Seth actually drives me bonkers. I mean, he really does drive me mad. I mean, a bloody man can play the violin, write a book, make a speech, probably do an operation for a heart opera. There's nothing the damn man can't do. Then so he always moves on to something else too. He, having conquered something, he moves on to something else. But he is he's a beautiful writer. He's a beautiful writer. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to the television series because I loved the book. I'm praying the cricket match will be as wonderful on screen as it was
2: in the book. Cricket's always a challenge to filmmakers, isn't it? They needed a lot of work to get the famous cricket scene in, in The Go-Between right when Joseph Losey directed that. and They did it beautifully in the end, but it, I know it was very hard work. I'd like to go back to the century, because uh, the ending of the century reminded me a great deal of uh, a lot of school stories about cricket, in the sense that it, as a century ends with a sort of double act of great sportsmanship, Now, I just wondered, Geoffrey, whether you'd read a lot of um, school fiction about cricket when you were young and whether it had influenced you at all.
0: Well, uh, Richard McCompton, just William, he never stopped playing cricket. He wasn't very good at it, a bit like me. Uh, The century, I actually witnessed, Richard. That happened when I was at Oxford, when this man who failed to get a blue his first year, got a blue his second year and was out for a duck, got a blue his third year and was out for 11, got a... They finally, and there he was on 98, not out. And he hit the ball straight to the captain of the Cambridge side, who dropped it, let him get his century. And then, of course, the batsman hit hit his stump on the next ball and was out for 101. And that, to me, tells you everything you need to know about cricket. I am sick of those people in the modern game. For me, I still think walking was an honourable thing. And I met the Gilchrist, the, the wicket-keeper for Australia, the very Adam, great wicket-keeper. Adam Gilcher. Gilchrist. Well, Adam he Gilchrist. still walked. Yep. And that's, what, 10 years ago? He still walked, and his team criticised him for it. I thought that was very sad. I, I congratulated him and shook him by the hand.
1: Uh, Jeffrey, apart from the century, you wrote another standalone short story, A Change of Heart, based on a true story. Could you share that with any listeners who haven't read it?
0: Well, it's a sad story in the sense that one is very. I became very aware as a young man, particularly as a young politician, when I was in the house and, and visited South Africa, that there were, I know you. this will make you laugh and show how naive I am, there were actually people who thought black people were inferior. There was no doubt they actually thought that. And I couldn't do anything about it. I, I didn't get on well in South Africa at that time. I was taken off radio and television shows for giving my own view and Pretty well, if I hadn't been a Member of Parliament, I think I would have been sent back to England. And I've had so many. my running days, when I had the privilege of running, I can't remember how many great black runners just made me look idiotic and ordinary. And so when it came an opportunity, Peter, to write a story about a man involved in a car crash, whose life is saved by that great heart surgeon, Christian Barnard, but he's taking the black heart out and giving it to the white man. I couldn't resist the irony of that and what it did to his whole life, how overnight he decided he'd been totally wrong. One of the sad things about the situation we have at the moment in our country and all over the world is that those of us who've been fighting for, in my case, all my life, for Black Lives Mattered under a different name, or equally important, I think, Uh, women's rights, both of those things I've fought for all my life, is that they're now being taken out of context. You now can't say anything that can be misunderstood. And that's sad.
2: Um, Geoffrey, you've started a long sequence of novels about um, police detective William Warwick, and he has a cricket technique for Keeping awake on night watches, which is a might, might be serviceable to a lot of listeners who have to stay awake at night. Um, would you like to describe how he keeps himself awake? Well, one of
0: the privileges of writing this particular set of books on William Warwick is that I have advising me chief attendant John Sutherland, who's recently retired. Very fine man. He retired sadly because of what he described in his own brilliant book, "One Murder Too Many." And so, when I write a book. I sometimes need expertise to come in and advise me. So he reads the books and says, well, you know, I've fallen asleep when I was on watch and I've got several ways of keeping myself awake. And I'll give you an example that happened even yesterday, Richard. I I was yesterday packing a Caravaggio and the Caravaggio is being moved from Scotland to Spain. And the criminal who's moving it Uh, is trying to get it out of the country without people knowing. But I then sat down and had to describe packing it. Mm. So I rang the company who do the packing for any major art piece that goes from one gallery to another abroad. And I said, can I send you the four pages where I've packed the Caravaggio and unpacked the Caravaggio? And he said, yes, please and i've sent him the four pages and he can say well it's not tiny pellets you put in it's rubber it's mm. not cellophane that covers the canvas it's a, you've got to get those things right and and so always i like to go to absolute professionals and say to them if i'm packing a caravaggio you don't know richard you don't know peter how to pack a caravaggio I now know how to pack a Caravaggio, and my readers will find out.
2: That's very helpful, Geoffrey. Do you know, when you first started describing that, I thought for a moment you weren't speaking fiction. I thought you were, I thought you might be describing one of your own Caravaggio's. Oh, I wish I had a Caravaggio. <laughs> uh, there are only
0: 11 in private hands in the world. Uh, one hasn't come up for sale now for over 30 years. I've seen every one, every Caravaggio except the two in Malta. There are two in Malta, which my son has seen and I have not. Uh, For me, he's the greatest of them all. The purists will say he isn't, but for me, they'll say he's too romantic. Uh, But for me, he's the greatest of them all. Christ coming off the cross in the Vatican is
1: unquestionably uh, an amazing masterpiece. Having had the uh, privilege of being in your flat, uh, Geoffrey, in South London over the river, I do remember being instructed by you to ask what needed to go to the loo, and you said, Go down the corridor to the Picasso and turn right, is with your instruction. <laughs>
0: Quite right, and in the in the loo now, you'll be glad to hear, Peter, I've got a Hockney.
1: <laughs> oh, good! I'm glad
2: to. For
0: years of trying to get a Hockney, I've got a Hockney self portrait in the loo. So next time you come, go to the loo.
2: Geoffrey, we uh, in the early episodes we referred to the. Um... The terrible events in the Oval, after you were were run out for the House of Lords against playing in the revived House of Lords and House of Commons cricket match in 1993, and all sorts of things happened. The, The front of heaven was full of fiery shapes, the goats ran from the mountains, and the herds were strangely clamorous to the frighted fields. Um... There's been a sort of code of omerta about those events. Do you want to give your version of them now, Geoffrey? Or perhaps you'd like to deal with them in fiction in one of your, not, one of your forthcoming Well, novels. I feel
0: it's important for you to know, Richard, that the crowd of 60,000 at the Oval that day had come to see me bat, not to listen to you waffle, <laughs> And I was out far too early, and the crowd were very angry indeed. I felt I should point out to the crowd that uh, my highest score ever in cricket is uh, the same in snooker and the same in cricket. Uh, my score of 32 is the highest I've ever managed in my life. And I was determined to get 50 at the Oval, uh, aware that uh, of my batting talent. And so you're quite right. There was complete uproar and the pavilion, and many people wrote to the Times about it. Others said they wanted their money back. They had come to see the great man score. And he had not been allowed to. He'd been treated disgracefully. And I agreed with all those comments at the time. And it just, I feel the same prejudice about that cruel comment Peter made earlier, that uh, when I saw the name Joffrey Archer come up on the screen, did I realize my moment had come? Yes, of course. And don't be in any illusions, you two. I still intend to captain the England cricket team and I still intend to be
1: Prime Minister. Bridget, the producer, is asking what actually happened.
2: I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> what happened, um, Richard? I, I, I remember walking out. I remember you walking out. You, um, you scored, you joined a. Um, the peers had knocked up quite a good score. The peers were batting first. Peers, I think you came in about number seven or eight. You joined, I think it might have been Lord Bramwell as a matter of fact. Lord Bramwell uh, the Field Marshal. Field Marshal, I think, you, field field Marshall, Bramall, I think was the non-striking was the batsman. Who was this gracefully
0: man. treated towards the end of his life. Wasn't he? Yeah. Great man. And, um, so what
2: happened? Yeah. I was with the Field Marshal. You were with the Field Marshal. You'd scored a few runs, and then you were cruelly and savagely um, run out. Uh, by the Field Marshal? Not by the... Well, I, I don't know who... Well, I just want to tell was, you but, about the Field yeah. Marshal.
0: It's very interesting you should mention Phil Marshall Bramall because he and I had one thing in common. He also thought he ought to captain the England cricket team. And so he ran me out because he was fearful. He was fearful that I would be rung up by Ted Dexter and asked to captain the team and that he wouldn't. Truth is, he never made it. He did go on to be president of the MCC. And I'll tell you a lovely story about that, Richard. We were in the box for a test match at Lord's. And I turned to the Field Marshal and I said, Field Marshal, you see that man standing in the crowd out there on his own, England versus Australia. Did you see him? He said, yes, Geoffrey. I think he's going to be Prime Minister of Australia. Oh, do you want to invite him up, Geoffrey, if you say so, sir? So I went down and I brought him up and introduced John Howard to the Field Marshal, who was Prime Minister for 11 years and Her Majesty Mm -hmm. gave him the Order of Merit. And the field marshal never forgot it. He said, you know, you saw him in the crowd and bought him up. I'd met him the year before when he was leader of the opposition. And there wasn't any doubt in my mind that he would be the prime minister of his country. So we became close friends. And of course, he loved the game of cricket. Absolutely, mm. totally prejudiced. I mean, he's one of those men. He's like Robin Butler, if that name means anything to you. Yeah. Yeah, they sir, are totally prejudiced mm-hmm. when they discuss cricket. They're absolutely not sensible. They think their side is the best in the world, and if they haven't won, the other side have cheated. I have always thought nothing wrong with losing if you lose honourably.
1: Not in the case of John Howard or... <laughs> it's interesting because Robin, of course, Robin Butler having been the uh, Cabinet Secretary, where he has to be absolutely impartial and fair-minded about everything, you're saying he completely lost it and became... Most partisan, fanatical supporter when it came to cricket. Yes.
0: And he was, to be fair, Peter, as you will remember, a brilliant cabinet secretary, much respected by both sides, much respected by both sides, and remained a close friend all my life. And he and that other lunatic, Harold Wilson, he was another one who thought, I mean, he thought Huddersfield were actually better than Milan, you know, I mean... (laughs) You would stop there. Oh, Geoffrey, he said. Did you watch Huddersfield last week? I said, no, Prime Minister, I didn't. (laughs) Oh, it's a wonderful match. 3-1. Let me take you through it, (laughs) Geoffrey. Completely bonkers. (laughs) It's very kind of you, Prime Minister. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Geoffrey, what I'd love to ask you about, because you wrote so eloquently on a really unusual subject in your prison diaries, which is cricket in prison. Tell us about how much it meant to you and to the other prisoners. Well, prisoners are
0: funny because there there I was in the middle, lag before wicket was what I was actually out for in my first match. Uh, There I was on the field with murderers and with all sorts of very evil people. But what genuinely shook me is on the cricket pitch, they thought cheating was not on. They were very, very, very careful that no one could call them a cheat. So I said to one... one, I was the umpire, and one of the fast bowlers went over the line, and I said, no ball. And he said, what was that for? And looked as if he was about to kill me. I said, you were an inch over the the ball, and if you do it again, I'll give another no ball. And he was so respectful and polite. So the game of cricket brings some very strange people together. Throughout life, Peter, I found that on a cricket pitch, you don't know where anyone comes from or what they've done in their life. I mean, they... It's one of the great levellers, cricket. And at the other extreme, there is one particular... Clive Lloyd will tell you who this is, but I won't. But I was there when it happened. There's one particular match where where Clive was going to captain a guest team. I was going to do the auction, and I can't tell you where because you'll then know who's involved. But Clive talked to me about it later and said, I'll never go again. And I said, why not? And he said, because uh, his side has to win. So the tournament every year is won by his side. And Clive said quite simply, that's not cricket and I'll never go again. And I I agreed with him 100%. But what a great man and what a great captain. What a great captain of the West Indies. And I was so delighted that he got a knighthood. I went to his 70th birthday party just before the breakdown. And when he got up to speak, I thought he would chat about cricket. He didn't. He talked about the problems of young people in the West Indies and the problems of young West Indians in Britain. And he did it so eloquently and with such passion. I I, I thought, you know, there's so much more to you than just cricket. But then both of you, being a couple of old-fashioned has-beens, will realize that if you really love the game of cricket, there probably is more to said person.
1: Well, as as the greatest cricket book ever written, was by a West Indian C. L. R. James called Beyond the Boundary. There's more, you know. Oh nothing. yes, cricket is about everything else. Yeah,
2: Jeffrey, you have several times in your political career. I've read about you being tipped as the next sports minister. I don't know if you ever actually ever coveted the job, but um, we're not going to make you sports minister ah, with absolute power in the in the new government of national salvation that's coming up. <laughs> um, is there anything? What would, what would you like to do with that unlimited power? What would you most like to do for um for British sport and indeed global sport? It still
0: annoys me that if you look at the England cricket team today, how few of them didn't go to private schools, went to public in the wet sense government schools. We do not have enough people in the. The game is not being played in the playground. So one of the first things I'd do as sports minister, but I'd rather be prime minister, Richard, because then I could get it done, is I would not allow anyone to build on a cricket pitch. All green land where sport was played would remain green land where sport was played. And if we can't get our young out playing, that's a terrible, terrible thing. So that's the first thing I do is make sure the young had a chance and were introduced to the game. I I think always, you know, it's a cruel thing to say, Richard, and you've been to India many times. When I come out of, say, Mumbai airport, and I travel from the airport to the centre to go to the Taj Mahal Hotel, one of the great hotels on earth, and then I stay in the presidential suite, and then I do my thing and I travel back in my chauffeur driven car and I look out on the road and I see children sitting on the pavement who will never get an education. And I say to myself as I look at them, I said when my wife and there were, I said, look, there's Picasso. Oh, no, no, sorry. It's not Picasso. It's Johann Sebastian Bach. Oh, no, it isn't. Sorry. It's the new Coley. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, how do we know how talented these people are if they're never given the opportunity? I have never believed in equality, Richard, and I never will. I believe in the equality of opportunity. The chance to have a chance is what I believe in and always will. So it would delight me if we had more children you're not telling me in Battersea with all those West Indians, all those Indians, there isn't a world-class slow bowler there who's never been to a cricket pitch. I met a child quite recently when I was doing research for the new book. He was a child of a broken home in Battersea and I, I, and his father was a murderer and I was talking to him. He lived in Battersea. Now hold your breath, you two middle-class people. Hold your breath. He he didn't know there was a river running through London and he lived in Battersea. So, yes, I would give children the opportunity to find out how good they are at something.
2: Geoffrey, I wish we could spend a few more hours at the crease with you. It's been an absolute pleasure and an absolute thrill having you with us. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: It really has been fun, Geoffrey. It's been very generous of you with your time and with your ebullience. And it's great to see you in such and hear you in such fantastic form.
0: I'm 80 not out and I'll
1: see you when I'm 100, if you two are still
0: alive. Goodbye.
1: (laughs) So it's goodbye from Geoffrey Archer in Grantchester.
2: Goodbye from me in Wiltshire. And goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in Roberto Towers, London, SE1.